0: Well, this morning, we finally come to the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, and to the end of a long, and I hope, spiritually helpful journey for many of us. We first started reading through Romans on September the 11th last year, to Easter, and it's interesting, isn't it, that this letter, with all its depth and all its theologically stretching content that we've been wrestling with, now ends with this delightful focus on a group of named people, on honoring simple hard work, on the importance of relationships and on practical, down-to-earth godliness. And it is a chapter, of course, as we've heard just read, full of greetings. And I confess uh, to be in a mood for greetings, uh, because uh, again and again this past week, we were able to offer greetings from you to people in Romania, and we have been clearly instructed to bring you greetings from our brothers and sisters in Alexandria. And never have I had so many cheek-to-cheek holy kisses as in this past week. And uh, incidentally, I bring you greetings from Mr. and Mrs. Haviland. I got back from the wedding early this morning with Janet. This is their wedding in Hull yesterday. And it was a glorious day and an extremely happy wedding. Uh, We had a special staff meeting to help Andrew learn how to scrub up for his wedding. (laughs) And here he is in all his glory, and Christina even more. And here they are, as we threw our confetti yesterday. And here's a group of friends who were with us yesterday, who send their greetings to you this morning. But this chapter is much more than a list of warm greetings and commendations. Emil Brunner, the Swiss uh, theologian, says in his commentary, Romans 16 is one of the most instructive chapters in the whole of the New Testament, and I think he is right. And what this chapter presents, it seems to me, is an unselfconscious but very moving portrait of the fruit of the good news of Jesus Christ that he's been expounding in these chapters. Meeting Jesus changes everything. It changes relationships. It brings hope and freedom. It brings purpose and joy in serving others It brings a foretaste of nothing less than the beginnings of a new humanity. And it's wonderfully portrayed in this very personal way. Over the last weeks, I've been struck again through sad stories I've heard and through sad encounters I've had of how very self-focused very self-concerned, and at times downright callous, society can be today. And this chapter is so different. It oozes with warmth, and it oozes with care. It oozes with affirmation and purpose and joy in Christ. And this is the chapter I want us to look at for a final time in this series on Romans. And first, what can't fail to impress is the richness of true Christian fellowship. If you look at verse 1 and 2, the chapter begins with Paul warmly commending a woman called Phoebe. Clearly, a very prominent woman in Paul's circle of friends. The strong likelihood is that she is mentioned first because she is actually the personal carrier of Paul's letter from Corinth, where it was written, to Rome. Maybe as part of a business trip, probably with people to support and protect her, she brings the letter to Rome and, according to the custom of the time, would in all likelihood have been the one who read this long letter to the church in Rome. And Paul gently affirms her in a number of delightful ways. She is, verse 1, our sister. She is a servant, or as it can be translated, a deacon of the church in Sancria, a seaport near Corinth. She is generous, verse 2. She has been the benefactor of many people including me, says Paul. She, was a clearly, she clearly was a gifted woman who could be trusted. It's interesting, isn't it, that it wasn't Timothy or Titus or Tertia who were given this important task. And as Tom Wright provocatively comments, the first expositor of Paul's greatest letter was a traveling businesswoman. And what follows and what is so impressive is the sheer number and diversity of those who the Apostle now greets. Paul is anything but an apostolic Lone Ranger. He knew and he honored and he worked with a huge number of people. And here he is greeting 26 people by name, not bad, for a church that he's never visited. Some, like Priscilla and Aquila, he had clearly met on his travels. Clearly, Paul has a good memory. One of my embarrassing moments, and there are many, is when at a Baptist assembly not too long ago, I talked to a couple and said, have I met you before? And they replied, yes, you stayed at our house last year. (laughs) Not so, Paul. Many scholars suggest that I've got this in the wrong order here Many scholars suggest that at least five house churches interconnected as the Church of Rome are implied by these greetings. It's debatable, but it's an interesting comment. The house of the Church of Priscilla and Aquila, verse five, those among the house, the household of Aristobulus. Those among the house of Narcissus, Asyncritus and his brothers and sisters, verse 14, Philologus and the Lord's holy people, verse 15. Be that as it may, he greets this whole range of people. Some of them would have been poor, Urbanus and Rufus were common slave names, some were aristocratic. Aristobulus, his household, mentioned in verse 10, could well have been the Aristobulus, who was the grandson of Herod the Great, and many were in the social classes between. Some of these names listed here are Latin, some of them are Jewish, some of them are Greek. And here they are, all one in Christ. And in in passing, there seems to be touches of humor here. In verse 12, the two women mentioned Tryphena and Tryphosa. Their names can be translated delicate and dainty. And yet, no doubt, with a wry smile, Paul commends them for their hard work. And in verse 15, there is a characteristically delightful character called Philologus literally a lover of words, we could translate his name as chatterbox, some nameless person who sat here this morning desperately trying to sleep on the plane to Romania did gently point out to me at Bucharest Airport that I never stopped talking from the, day I le- from the moment I left Glasgow to Bucharest. A philologus. Notice three things in passing. First, notice the sheer warmth and sincerity of Paul's greetings. There's nothing just formal or polite here. He calls these people our dear friends, our fellow workers. He thanks those who have worked so hard with him for the cause of the gospel, and he wants to greet each other, and wants us to greet each other with nothing less than a holy kiss. Notice secondly, if I can get back to this, that out of the 26 persons greeted, 10 of them are women. Phoebe, who we've already mentioned, Priscilla, verse 3, Mary, verse 6, Junia, verse 7, Tryphena and Tryphosa were they twins, Persis, Rufus' mother, Julia, and Nerus' sister. Paul, without hesitation, affirms these women, some of whom seem to have had leadership roles. It's interesting that whenever he mentions Priscilla and Aquila, also, of course, tent makers who he first met in Corinth, he always seems to mention Priscilla first against common convention. Even more interesting, when he mentions Andronicus and Junia in verse 7, he calls them outstanding among the apostles. Clearly, this couple, who Paul says in verse 7 were converted even before he was, were in some significant way church pioneers and missionaries. And notice third, Paul not only offers greetings to his friends in Rome, but he sends greetings from his present ministry team in Corinth where he is writing. So if you look down to verse 21 to 24, it includes Timothy and Lucius and Jason and Sosipater and Tertius and Gaius and Erastus. All of which is to say, as I've already mentioned, that Paul can hardly have been The angular, authoritarian, aloof, self-contained individualist sometimes people make the Apostle Paul out to be. Romans 16 is an incontrovertible piece of evidence that Paul has a deep commitment to seeing ministry as the ministry of all the people of God. One of Paul's favorite terms used here three times in verse 3 and 9 and 21 is the affectionate term fellow worker or co-laborer. So here's the first feature of this final chapter I want us just to note. The sheer richness of Christian fellowship and partnership in the gospel. And I think we must never take this for granted Since getting back, talking to someone who has been really struggling, they said to me, the only support really I've received is from my own daughter and the church. And almost without trying, Paul powerfully illustrates the reconciling power of the gospel in a deeply divided and cold society, by listing the greetings as he does here. Here is Vary, a former homeless, special needs Roma girl who the Baptist Church in Alexandria not only employs as a cleaner, but allows her to live in the church flat. This is the power of the gospel. But second... Along with such rich hospitality comes responsibility. And if you have your Bible open and look on to verses 17 to 19, Paul goes on to say these words. I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions, those who put obstacles in your way, that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. In other words, we must never take for granted this unity and joy and fellowship and warmth in Christ that we are celebrating, that has come about through the cross of Christ. Such unity is a powerful witness, and the enemy will do all he can to try and ruin this unity of witness That we share together. And so, Paul, not only in these final words, brings all these lovely greetings, but he just pauses one more time to say a word about the vigilance that we need. I like the way Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, The Message, puts these words One final piece of counsel, my dear friends. Keep a sharp eye out. For those who take bits and pieces of the teaching you have learnt and then use them to make trouble, give these people a wide berth. They have no intention of living for our Master Christ. They are only in it for what they can get out of it for themselves. And at this point, of course, Paul may well be casting his mind back to all that we've looked at in chapters 14 and 15 about letting secondary matters actually ruin our unity in Christ. John Stott helpfully sees in these words three diagnostic tests implied here. First, is this person and is their teaching biblical? Verse 17, contrary to the teaching you have learned Second, is this person and is their teaching Christ-centered, verse 18, such people are not serving the Lord Christ. One writer beautifully puts it like this, the frail craft which is the church is always exposed to the being blown helplessly in any direction by hurricane winds. If she is to catch the wind of the Spirit... She must always hoist that one sail called Christ. And third, is this person and is their teaching leading to a holy life? Verse 19, I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Or as J.B. Phillips paraphrases it, I want, you to, I want to see you as experts in the good and not even beginners in the evil. I don't know about you, but my view is that churches endure so many painful divisions needlessly. Preserving the warmth and joy of fellowship is in one sense very simple. It is is to have a heart for the scripture It is to have a heart for Christ and it is to have a heart to live a quiet, godly life. I love the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he defined the church in this way. He said it very powerfully and very simply. The church, he said, is that space in the world which is seen to be structured according to its true centre. And look at what Paul says at the end, verse 20. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's the only time in the whole of Romans Satan is mentioned. One day soon, says Paul, God will come to bring harmony to the whole world. The evil one will be crushed and we can begin to experience that now. And then finally, Paul ends where he wants us to end, totally looking to God. The richness of Christian community, the responsibility to guard it. And finally, one more reminder of the resource available to us. This final doxology, if you look down to verse 25 to verse 27, is just one sentence in the original and it just flows from Paul in glorious summary of all that we've been wrestling with together to him who has the power to establish you to strengthen you in accordance with my gospel to him be the glory and of course as Paul ends So he's echoing how he began. Remember in chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And having started with the power of God in the good news of Jesus, so in this final doxology, he ends with the power of God which is available to us. To him, the only wise God who has the power to keep you in the good news, the power to bring this good news to fruition, to him be praise and glory. Last week in Romania, we met a lovely lady who had only been baptized two weeks before, and she had a beautiful, beaming face with all that Christ had revealed to her. Last week, we also met brothers and sisters who had endured many years of communism as young Christians and yet who still were beaming with the love and the grace of Jesus. God and God alone is able to change this world in Christ and God and God alone is able to protect us and keep us and give us the energy to keep going this God revealed in Jesus Christ This God who has made his mystery of salvation first known to the prophets. This God who brings faith and the obedience that comes through this faith. This God who brings the good news to all the Gentiles, to all the nations, is our hope. And he is at work still among us this morning. Andrew Haviland may be embarrassed for me to say this. But in the speeches at the end of his wedding yesterday, his best man gave a brilliant talk. Uh, His best friend from Shetland, they grew up, went to school together in Shetland, and here he was giving Andrew's uh, best man's speech. And he said very movingly, he said, for many years I've been Andrew's best friend, but recently I've become his brother in Christ. And through the witness of Andrew, this guy has come to faith in Jesus Christ. That is the power. That is the good news. That is what we celebrate. And that is what we give glory to God for this morning. Amen.